Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. This series features a deep dive into the DMG rule supplement series of books. What advice can we take from these books and use in our current games? On the 12th day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me 12 drummers drumming with bones on skin. Yep, drumming. Uh, The Complete Book of Necromancers. This Tui source book was written by Steve Kurtz and was published in 1995. This is the seventh in a series of nine DM-focused books for second edition AD&D. You might recognize these as the blue faux leather, faux nogahide, whatever, soft cover books. Um, And today we are launching into chapter seven uh, of this book and expecting to finish it. Uh, the Untitled Chapter 7. Sam, tell us about <laughs> The Untitled One. It's, it's titled Allies. It's just that it did, the title didn't make it to the top header. <laughs> That's a really strange but, title for this chapter. Um, well, The Allies of the Necromancers. I mean, so, so basically right. what this chapter is going to do is it's going to present us the idea of um, apprentices and henchmen and familiars and undying minions, you know, those undead followers, and then some ideas about secret societies that these people might, uh, in fact, belong to. Um, and so it's, you know, that that's basically where it's going. So let me let me tell you about uh, the, for what it starts with. It starts with um, the fact that, you know, necromancers do not live alone. And they have servants, right? And once they reach uh, ninth or tenth level, they attract apprentices. They can hire henchmen, and they can summon familiars. And because they're necromancers, they can raise undead to become undying followers. But the priests, the death priests, so that's what a necromancer can do. The death priests gain a cult of fanatical followers when they hit ninth level. So. This chapter applies to both. So, you know, we had that kind of split at this book. We, we had the beginning that was about wizards or necromancers, and then we had the second, and then we had spells for them, and then we had the sort of second part about death priests, which is basically the priest's component of necromancers. And now we had the spells, and now we're at we're back together saying, okay, well, all of these things basically apply to both of those. Um, We're just going to put them under slightly different headers. So a priest doesn't really have an apprentice. You just name it something else. They really could have an apprentice. It would just be a different thing. I mean, the, the lower ranking priests, we we have all kinds of titles for that, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. acolyte, neophyte, these words spring to mind. Yeah, that's what I mean. And so that yeah. tech, that's an apprentice, right? So it's not it's not that only necromancers get apprentices. It's just that it's not necessarily, you know, called an apprentice per se, but it basically is. Um, and and then the the you know the book talks about you know if you have a student that is that is learning all of your, you know your your wonderful skill set if you're a necromancer and you're trying to teach them, you know there are some mechanical you know, elements to that. And so it talks about those, um, you know, uh, talks about how high a level you have to be and what level the apprentice has to be. And, you know, just it's very mechanical and a little bit less flavor than maybe I would like. Although I'm not sure you can say much more than, hey, it's an apprentice. 
this is a person who's going to learn to do what you do. And you got to be careful because they might then overpower you or, or exceed your power and then you have a problem, right? But other than that, there's not really much to say, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty well established how it goes with the Sith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yes. There are always two. And and that's sort of what seems to be happening here, aside from the fact that you get one D four apprentices rather than always exactly one. Right. Um, and so just to be clear, an apprentice is different from a henchman because an apprentice is specifically trying to learn your skill set or learn how to wield the skill set better from from you, they're from the necromancer or priest. They're trying to do that. And they don't get paid in money necessarily. They're getting paid in service right because they're 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 being taught whereas a henchman is actually a paid compensated particular set of people that aren't necessarily also magic users or priests Mm -hmm. yeah the the class breakdown there is pretty cool Mm -hmm. um that I, i like that pretty well it is improbable that a retinue will include druids rangers paladins or wizards from a different school those paladins need to think about what they've done in second edition. Yeah. In, uh, I mean, not that there aren't ways to be a good um, necromancer or, or death priest in this book. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm, right. Well, obviously in fifth ed, uh, the whole conception of the paladin is uh, like broken out of just being lawful good. And so mm-hmm. it's, Right, a broader right. concept, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, there's there's perfectly fine stuff here. A little bit wall of texty. It is very wall of texty, and th- and that's why I mentioned that it's a lot of rules, but it's in it's not in easily digestible formatted yeah. rules, right? With bullet points or a table or anything like that. It's just giant text with very little to break it up. Which, you know, that kind of, I mean, it follows from the rest of the book. So by the time you get to this page, you're probably not surprised by that, but it is very dense and, and full of, you know, wall of text is one thing. And I, and I, I, I know it's not a great way to present information, but if that information is all prose or description, then it's, you you can kind of get through it. But when it's rules text, and also references, because there is a reference to Dungeon uh, Magazine number 27. There are references to oh. other books. There's, you know, there's numbers being thrown back and forth about, you know, 10% this and beyond third level that. And, you know, what, you know, what does it take to be greater than fifth level and like all of these things. And it's all really rules text, but not yep. really presented as such. And it's, it's really difficult to parse. Um. It makes it feel much more complex than it actually is, because what they've laid out is actually a really reasonable way to start building a retinue for the necromancer NPC, right? The the, the main villain, if this is going to be the main villain, right? And you're following the, 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 the guidelines and different things from the last book that we read, Complete Book of Villains, this will fit perfectly in there. And it's a really nice way to do it. It's just that it's it's formatted so hard to read that some of it gets lost. And I mean, you know, whatever. It's okay. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's just it, tough. It, 
is certainly going to influence how I'm able to even discuss any of it mm-hmm. um, in this mm-hmm. episode because I have not done a deep <laughs> yeah. pre-read with notes the way our more diligent mm-hmm. host mm-hmm. has done. Uh, thank you, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I do like here is uh, when we get into um, familiars and undying minions, um, things get a little more, a little more evocative mm-hmm. and a little mm-hmm. easier to process. Um, yeah. The discussion of um, discussion of familiars is really very friendly to your your pact of the chain warlocks. Um, there's there's some um, stuff here that's worth like chewing over if you're going to play a warlock with the cast find familiar or a pact of the chain warlock specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they talk about. Um, uh, for, for instance, instead of your imp looking like an anno- annoying two-foot-tall two fiend, something akin to Jabba the Hutt's maniacally cackling pet uh, <laughs> in, in the film The Empire Strikes Back, uh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Empire Strikes Back <laughs> I mean, it's a it, it's, it's salacious crumb. You could at least name his name. Come on. It's, it's rude. It's rude, Steve. All right? Um, he might not have known the name. We might have to re- revoke his geek card. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna have a word with the high council. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, there's there's neat stuff here. Yeah. Um and uh, it, t- taking some of this in combination with some of the um the, the weirder stuff in um players option spells and magic, uh you can you can get somewhere with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, uh, this is a good section just because it sort of provides different, a different maybe thought process than a person who's used to dealing with just sort of quote regular wizards, right? Like, how would you, again, this is a reflavor issue. It's, it's like that. It's, it's like salacious, right? He's sort of weird looking. He's a Muppet type creature that is fun and funny. Even though, I mean, technically speaking, he's an evil, you know, whatever, little squirrel man. But um, but how do you reflavor something to really evoke the necromantic power source, so to speak, or the shadow power source, depending on, you know, how you're thinking of it? You know, and, and it talks about the different, you know, what are you going to have an extra planar creature as a familiar, right? And, you know, what does it take to to actually be able to control that? creature as a familiar do you just have something very basic but instead of being normal it's a skeletal version like you know there's there's a lot of good stuff in here again it's very wall of texty right um but you know it's it's a less less rules text and more sort of flavor interesting discussion type text than here's a rule here's another rule here's another rule you know yeah um uh, this does also make me appreciate how some of the presentation of uh, Warlock Pacts has uh, has changed as we've gone mm-hmm. into 5th edition. Uh, it talks about how um, you know, you know, our discussion of Explanatory Familiars has implied that they would only work with a wizard who's completely evil in alignment unless they were trying to corrupt them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that leaves out a lot of stories where hey the warlock is themselves fine 
and we're mm-hmm. telling the story of the of their fiendish uh, servant trying to corrupt them and and really getting into that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which this isn't going to help you tell all that much. And mm-hmm. I think that's a shame. Yeah. Um, but th- they do touch on, um, you know, powerful necromancers of neutral or good alignment getting uh, servants from the upper planes, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. a weird idea in its own right. Right. I think that's actually a little farther outside the fiction, but whatever, it's fine. Um, like th- there is a little bit of overtone of the, uh, the celestial patron from mm-hmm. Denethar's here. Right. Uh, anyway, uh, we get into undying minions next. Well, I, so hold on. I, I think that, I think the familiar thing, I think part of the issue there is they don't really elaborate on that enough. Like they, they elaborate on sure. a lot of things, but then they kind of get to that point where they say, you know, the implication of having an extra planar familiar is that the necromancer is going to be completely evil, right? Because no fiend is going to serve a good master, as you mentioned, right? But then yep. it says, it, it, it offers, in, in just this very last paragraph, it offers two or three sort of other optional items, but then it really doesn't evaluate those very well or embellish those or or you know really go into what that would mean for your campaign um and this is one of those places where i feel like this is where they're using that idea of oh this is for an npc villain this isn't for the pcs this they're using that a little bit as a crutch sure because that's the reason why they don't need to go into this because of course your npc villain is not going to be good aligned and try to use a deva as you know as their as their patron right. or as their familiar and that's sort of you know like to bring it up but then really not talk about it that's a to me that's a a drawback to this section actually it's a really good section it's like two whole pages but it's just it's missing something and but it mentions it just let's not go into detail and I, I i really wish it had gone into detail yeah um this content is uh it would have been seen as awfully edgy for second ed mm-hmm. like in, i mean but the whole book it, is supposed to be edgy no it is it is just in um in the author's defense right mm-hmm. this is still the like very tail end of the satanic panic and it's not the same in all regions. And oh, yeah. I don't, no, I, I don't yeah. really hold that against him. Yeah. Yeah. I no, And, and I'm not saying that as I think they copped out in terms of because of that necessary, I, I'm just saying like, it's one of those places where I just wish there was more. And I know there are other constraints, right? And the satanic, I mean, look, we've talked about how poison's in this book because of assassins, because assassins had to be removed because of that. We've talked about how they had to change demons and devils to scenario, you know, like we've talked about all that. And I, I understand all, I mean, I lived through it, but I just, I want more. <laughs> I want more of this section. Um, sure. It's good as sure, it is, sure. but it could be better with just a couple more paragraphs. I definitely agree with that. So let's move on then. Undying Minions. <laughs> so, so Undying Minions. This is the part that actually gets easier to work through mm-hmm. because they've got uh, inline subheads, right? right? Uh, and those are different types of creatures mm-hmm. that could be mm-hmm. your horrible undead minion. 
and right. um, they really cover a lot of ground here with individual paragraphs, mm-hmm. a paragraph or two. Like, friends, if you can have a Dracolich as your undying minion, do that. Just, just go yeah. for it. And let me just say that one thing they do really well in this section is they ha- in the back of the book, what we're going to see is there's a chapter with some uh, magic items and some, some forbidden tomes. And in this section specifically, they start mentioning those forbidden tomes. So, for example, in the crawling, crawling claw section, um, it says, these animated hands and claws can be raised up by a wizard or priest starting at the first level experience, providing they have the knowledge to do so. Because, of course, crawling claws are, are tiny, you know, small creatures, whatever, tiny creatures. Yep. But then it says, the secret of this relatively simple necromantic rite can be found in both the, and this is the name of a tome, the art of necromancy. And a second tome, the Book of Shadows, which is the wizard version, the art of necromancy, uh, and Book of Shadows are the wizard versions, and the or or and also the Nicoptic manuscripts, which is the priest version of the way that you could like. And here's the thing: those things are italicized because they're the names of the book. And then as it goes through and it starts to describe these different elements here and it goes to different creatures and talks about those it's going to start mentioning okay who wrote this book and which book is it and who has access to that book and then later on we see in that forbidden tome section it's really going to tell us who wrote that book and how to get access to that book and what that book has in it and i really appreciate that they pulled in that material for these last three chapters and integrated it very well because the first half of the book is kind of separated between, well, here, wizard this and wizard spell this and priest that and priest spell that. And now since we're back together, it's really doing a good job integrating. And I really appreciate that. It's a bit of flavor that makes this whole last 20 pages or so feel really cohesive. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I love about that is that the heavy references to named texts, like, that is mm-hmm. so my deal, yeah. and uh, that is so very much in the style of uh, your HPL and your Clark mm-hmm. Ashton Smith mm-hmm. kind of kind of writing, uh, you know, without the horrible racism. <laughs> yeah. um, but just uh, it's it's suggesting a lot about these texts of great name and import uh, without needing to give you the whole text for it to feel cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, Nicoptic Manuscripts is a, a terribly unsubtle uh, <laughs> reference to a, a mythos tome. And <laughs> right, right. I have no yeah. problem in the world with that. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Go forth, do your mm-hmm. thing. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care what that. And the thing is, I mean, they could have named it anything. I just really appreciate, you know, you get to um, the crypt thing section, for example, and it says, you know, unless a necromancer or priest has chosen a tumor crypt as a lair, a crypt thing is unlikely to be a popular topic of research for that particular spellcaster. Kazarabet, that's the author of the book, hardly gives them more than a passing reference in her art of necromancy. And the Book of Shadows is a little more informative. And in the previous entry for the previous creature, Juju, uh, Juju Zombie, it talks about how um, Kazarabet, before she embraced the lifestyle as a sage and she wrote The Art of Necromancy, she relied heavily on 
juju zombies to run an entire dictatorship. I mean, just the flavor that it adds. And then the fact that it adds it later as a book that your PCs could actually hear about and experience is just, it's chef's kiss. It's perfect. Right. And and chapter nine, the campaign is going to build on and pay off all of this so much more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, it's really great. Yeah. I'm very excited about that part. Um, So we can kind of cruise through a lot of this, but assume that most major undead uh, that aren't, uh, you know, all the way into being their own boss, other than Draculich's, um, mm-hmm. are going to get name checked here somewhere. Right. Like, no vampires, no liches, no death knights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That Draculich's are on the table is just about. Hey, Wizards are working with dragons sometimes, right? So, mm-hmm. Necromancers are working with Draculich's. Yep, right, let's go. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, fine. I'm into it. Let's go. Um, but I don't know that I have a lot more I want to say about this, except that it's really well written and um, does the thing that Sam is talking about really nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, that extra bit of like lore touchstones here uh, really brings it to life. So let me just and let me just give you an example of how well this is pulled together um, in the skeleton warrior section. It says, it is rumored in the Book of Shadows that a talented wizard may be able to create another type of soul receptacle for a skeleton warrior, like a ring perhaps, that would enable an ambitious necromancer to simultaneously control more than one of these creatures. Other powerful mages, such as the famous Elminster, have noted that it may be possible to bind wizards in such a fashion. For example, Tashara of the Seven Skulls was said to have bound no fewer than seven lesser undead wizards into her service before she was finally outdone by her own ambition and greed for magical power. Such awesome necromantic bindings, including the subjugation of liches, if such is indeed possible, as implied by the art of necromancy, are risky enterprises for only the most powerful necromancers. I mean, that entire paragraph is so oozing with proper necromantic flavor. I'm just like, this is this, this chapter made this book for me as much as we talked about the spells. And I love some of those spells. And we talked about those classes and and all that, and all that stuff is great. But this chapter is like a swing and a home run. Yep. Um, and, And anyone who played dust to dust is like, Oh, is this where Brenda's got it from? Technically, no. Also, yes. Uh, just just this approach to uh, named texts and uh, interrelation of lore is very, very familiar to what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, like going through this, um, it feels very much in the vein of a, a Dark Souls. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in its lore distribution right. that's become one of the really famous things about Dark Souls so like mm-hmm. yeah this is doing the thing it is hitting you with evocative interrelated lore that still leaves a lot of room for you to mm-hmm. construct your own story of you know who, who did what and where and when right exactly um, so th- that's just great yeah um, that's awesome 
But I, I want to plow forward into secret societies before yeah. we get any more bogged down in this. Right. Um, so, so this section is going to present to us several secret societies, but before it does so, it tells us about the structure of the presentation. It's going to tell us some general description of the society. It's going to tell us then the privileges of membership. It's going to tell us the rites of passage and the goals of that. So it's given us four pieces of information, a general overview, privileges of membership, that is benefits you get when you join it, the rites of passage, things you have to do to you know stay in it and to maybe raise up in power. And then the goal, once you're indoctrinated into this particular secret society, you are you know, basically your job now is to try to further the goals of the organization. And so now it's mm-hmm. just going to describe those goals for each of these items, right? And then it gives us some examples. And this is a place where I just, there is something still missing in how we talk about um, players belonging to factions and mm-hmm. potentially players within a single party belonging to factions that have some friction mm-hmm. some maybe maybe some conflict maybe some goals that are directly uh, in contest mm-hmm. um, this doesn't answer that but boy i wish it did um how to just make that be okay at the table mm-hmm. and like yes okay clear it with your players ahead of time in session zero that is helpful it is not the full answer that yeah. can't carry all of the weight by itself is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there still has to be work done to keep it fair and fun over the course of, of play, because mm-hmm. you don't want that to turn into PVP. Presumably right. if you want a PVP game, that's, that's fine, but they mostly don't make those and they mm-hmm. mostly, um, it's mostly not a thing. Um, yeah, and so, you know, and we talked about this when we when we did our deep dive into the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide, and yep. the, you know, very early on in that book, it talks about factions, and it has this sort of couple of sample factions, and um, you know, I used that as a model to create a couple of different two or three different factions in that I thought maybe the players would be interested in in my D and D brief game in, in that setting, and um, that model that the fifth edition DMG gave me was really good. Um, not perfect. I, I elaborated on it a lot to, to make the factions for my homebrew setting. Um, but you're right. The thing it doesn't do is then give you the tools and the, the advice that are needed in order to allow people or PCs who, or, or NPCs even who are belong to different factions to actually have a working relationship that isn't going to devolve into PVP, but also that retains the tension because the tension is, is where the magic is. Right. Um, And, and that's, what's going to keep the players and their PCs sort of on edge and interested in how to resolve things or watching things snowball into getting a lot worse. And we still, you're right. We don't have the tools to do that. And yeah, this section does not do that, but Having said that, I do quite like the description of the oh, of the society no they're providing. I have no problem with this text as such, mm-hmm. uh, but we often talk about how we want this text to be just a little bit more, right? And, and that that's my that's my a little bit more absolutely. Um, yeah. But this also points out to me something about Second Ed that uh, is more noticeable in Second Ed texts than in 
any other edition's texts. And that is the degree to which it expects um, solo scenes where you are mm-hmm. maybe having a solo adventure or, or maybe you bring one friend with you. Um, and it's sort of unclear how montage that's going to get. Like, sure, you've got your advancement duels in, in 1E, but when you, when you look at this book, when you look at stuff with like um, Shair in Al-Qadim, mm-hmm. yeah. um, there, there seems to be a lot of just, um, the player will go off by themselves and do his thing for a while. And that's just, mm-hmm. it's just part of the mm-hmm. story. They just, they just do that. Yeah. And I feel like it's supposed to be part of downtime, but man, do I want it to become a really juicy version of a 5e downtime activity? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. So that the montage is uh, presented in a really digestible way. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I, and, and you're right. It does. I, I'm, you know, just thinking about some various different two E source books that I have access to and have read and remember Um, you're right. There is a lot of, and even in this series of books that we, that we've talked about, a lot of the examples end up being a scene with one or two PCs, oftentimes with just one PC and a bunch of NPCs. And yeah, yeah, it, it is a very, that is, that is a component of second edition that, um, that, you know, I, I can't say that when I played second edition, we ever did that though. Right. I can tell you for sure. We did not when I was running to me. Now, in fairness, there, there I was were, just learning to DM, but I did not yeah, have any I mean, idea how to make that happen. In fifth, ed- I mean, in in first edition, you know, we we did. I mean, we played first edition long into after two second edition was released, and then we sure. eventually, you know, picked up various different things and sort of hatcheted those together. But we did do occasionally. There were times when there would be a PC who wanted to do something when we were in town, and we didn't want to spend session time doing it and so it would be like a conversation between the dm and the player mm-hmm. sort of off-site not during the session and then when we came back they would say oh well this happened you know um yeah. but it wasn't frequent i mean often we just did everything at the table and usually nobody went by themselves like it was almost always two pcs minimum going to do something so that's interesting. It's an interesting observation to think about that. But you're right. A lot of these examples and a lot of the um, sort of unspoken assumption in in what's described is, well, you know, you're going to have PCs that are by themselves a lot. <laughs> so yeah. interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but like, I think you would probably agree that these secret societies would really push that in player use mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah for sure not that they're superintended for player use but man if you are able to really engage with these as how your wizards learn new spells you have achieved something that mm-hmm. is awesome right yeah, yeah um yeah and i always want to make that happen but uh boy is it hard at the table it's just it's so much yeah it's um, a lot anyway a lot. let's get into the 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 text a little more deeply um so we have four uh secret societies detailed here um we have the cult of worms 
the Scabrous Society, the Cult of Pain, and the Anatomical Academy. And the so the Cult of Worms is going to be your um, religious organization that is dedicated to a particular um, denizen of of the abyss, <laughs> right? Uh, and the this one wasn't one that I was super duper interested in. I mean, it's fine, um, but um, basically, it's a secret society and. Uh, it's it, it worms its way into governments so that it can put pressure where pressure is needed for them to get what they want. Um, the sort of main priestess of this cult is a lich, and um, she is um, imprisoned and uh, needs to basically get freedom. Yeah, I mean. Uh, m- well, let's free my own dead master is not you know, a new idea. Right? right, right. And and so the reason I like this is because it's not just describing, you know, it had this whole first part where it talked about, oh, what are the rites of passage and all that stuff in a cult like this or in an organization like this. And the reason I like this little, you know, this little vignette thing, or it's not really vignette, this, this little section on the cult of worms is it's trying to give you actionable story hooks for having this particular cult in your game. Even if you don't have, if if you're not going to play the campaign that's at the end of this book, you could still use what it says here as, you know, inspiration or fodder for if you wanted to make, you know, Vermissa, the the priestess, the main villain in your, in your next campaign, you could do so without Mm -hmm. using the chapter nine campaign at all. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's, it's brief, but it's fine. Mm -hmm. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Um, and then we get to the Scabrous Society. I mean, these guys are just kind of horrible jerks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they're horrible. This is your I mean, this is your society that is dedicated to the god of pestilence, right? So this is yeah. your this is your sickness and illness and and horribleness, uh, diseases like, and whatnot. If you if you need to figure out a way to present this as a little bit okay, then you owe it to yourself. Sorry, I'm a broken record on this topic, folks. <laughs> you, you, you owe it to yourself to read Harrow Hark the Ninth or Harrow the Ninth, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, by Tamsin Ware. Um, spoilers, something like this is going to come up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not one to one, but it's mm, notable, notably similar. Good enough. Yeah. So basically, what the society does is it sort of insinuates its way into a small town, a community, and it starts poisoning everything. That is, it poisons the livestock, it poisons the crops, it poisons the water, it poisons the populace, it causes infighting, it creates diseases and plagues, and it spreads them. And then by the time it moves moves out of that community, the community is basically decimated or completely gone. Yep. And that it's a, it's a never ending cycle of destruction. So this society is kind of always on the move, but always staying in place to destroy whatever's there. Yep. Uh, it's pretty nasty. I mean, I appreciate the, the discussion of tactics and, you know, mm-hmm. name checking some magic items they use, mm-hmm, that kind of mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. 
I think yeah, that's well, and that's what I mean about this this even this part of this chapter. Um, you know, and it did the same thing kind of with the cult of worms, is that it's trying to sort of give you a way to seed these things into if you want to use this in the game, you're gonna have to you can't just say that the way I just said it to the audience, right? You can't, yep. you can't just say, oh, here's all the stuff that's happening. You have to show that happening over time because it's not a, a you know snap the fingers and it's done kind of thing. It's a over months or years, it does this. And by the time anybody realizes, it's usually really far along and therefore difficult to stop. And that's what makes it so insidious and horrible. You know, and these are the these are the the individuals that are part of this society are the ones that are casting those horrible spells that that make your heart get all corroded and make your bones get all corroded and you know give you horrible diseases that cause contagion and and like this is horrible. <laughs> it's really horrible, but but it doesn't just happen right away. All of a sudden, I mean, if you need some horrible bad guys, your PCs can feel completely chill about fighting and fighting to the death mm-hmm. yep here we are that's them You're yeah. good. <laughs> exactly uh next up is the cult of pain um a, a, sadistic, a sadistic sect of the priests of the god of sorrow um i mean most of what you need to know here is covered actually in a lot more detail in the uh the, the section of the god of suffering Right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a, a much less interesting entry on it, mm-hmm. but it's here. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, it would be an it would be an omission if they didn't have it, but but what's here is is very mediocre. Yeah. Um, necessary, maybe, but mediocre. You know, especially compared to the last two entries and the next one, which I love, of course, because it's my favorite. Yeah. The next one is the Anatomical Academy. And it's here's what it says. It says, since the mutilation of corpses is regarded as anathema to many civilizations, this secret organization exists to spread the detailed knowledge of the human body and to provide its members with fresh cadavers on which to practice. The hierarchy consists of mainly of anatomists, but the order is open to all wizards, priests, healers, or surgeons with knowledge of interest in anatomy. And then here's the, here's the thing, and it talks about a whole bunch of stuff, but then it says the Academy is basically a neutral organization that exists merely to facilitate the collection and dissemination of necromantic knowledge. Bodies are accepted at the back door for a polite thanks, a sack of gold, and no questions. Like, this is exactly the type of organization that because it's presented as a more neutral element, that you can easily have this go either way. You could have a PC join this without realizing that it's really strictly based on the necromantic portions of what's happening and thinking that it's only there for the increase in knowledge. And if you have a wizard or a priest who is really fancies themselves a scholar who just want to learn things, this is perfect because they could end up working for this organization and having a patron that belongs to this organization. And they don't realize that they are actually working for what could be considered evil. Yep. And that is really great for tension in a game. Yeah, and just the the, the conflict of uh, hey, this guy is definitely for sure um, 
comfortable with the baddies, but he's also like my foot in the door on on getting some real power myself. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's that's a good conflict. It's, it's right. going to be it's going to be tough on your players in what I think could could easily be a good way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and the last sense, just before we move on, the last sense of this, the organization frequently hires rogues and adventurers to establish new contacts with potential sources. So, I mean, he, I know plenty of adventurers who are sources of cadavers, let me tell you. Uh, right. But I mean, so here's the, here's the thing that I like about this entry. It's not even that, of course, I'm a fan, you know, the, the anatomist archetype was my favorite one, right? But it's not even just that. It's that this specifically gives you a way to bring all of the PCs in the party into the fold, right? And make them a part of it. Whereas the other ones, it's sort of like, well, yeah, okay, um, maybe rogues, maybe a rogue or thief might might work for somebody from the cult of pain without realizing it. Um, or maybe, you know, a wizard might decide that the scabrous society has something they want to learn. Okay, fine. You know, or maybe they decide they want to infiltrate it so that they can, you know, stop it or something. Fine. But really the only one of these that has a direct, easily workable entry to bring the PCs all into that society or that organization is the anatomical Academy. Um, and now that Strixhaven has come out, I'm certainly imagining, <laughs> as I've talked about in other Tome Show episodes, mm-hmm. uh, Strixhaven's rival schools. Right. And mm-hmm. how much fun it would be to present something like the Anatomical Academy as you know, a school with a fixed location that... Mm-hmm. Like, do, you, do you go visit them if you need a course in necromancy while you're studying at Strixhaven? Like, right, right. is that a thing? Do they, do they do like visiting professors? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, it, it, God's help you. If you were in fact playing them in intramural sports. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, so I, I don't really have much more to say about that chapter unless you do. We can move no, on. No, no, I'm good. Okay. So chapter eight is tools of the trade. And here's where, you know, I mentioned earlier that it talks about poisons and whatnot. And and my my thought about that was because there's a question about whether this is even appropriate for this particular book, you know, but my thought about that was that because the assassin was basically taken out of the game and the assassin was the PC class that would be able to utilize poisons um, that to put this back in as a D sort of quote DM facing book where you're dealing with necromancers and whatnot, it kind of fits to be able to do that because some of those anatomists or some of those death priests might actually, you know, harvest the, the poisons or venoms from, from natural animals or from magical animals for that matter. And, create other concoctions and that would be kind of appropriate for maybe some of those secret societies or some of the individuals that are trying to learn uh, about necromancy or being apprenticed to a necromancer or something like that so i kind of feel like it's it belongs but i'm not exactly sure like i'm I'm not 100 percent sold on that so you know sure. we'll see i mean poisons and the scabrous society yeah absolutely sure sure, sure. yeah 
Um, the the ones they specifically get into here, okay, I'm sold. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, like death, dust, guests have uh, dream bliss. Um, dream mm-hmm. bliss certainly sounds like you know a, a poison <laughs> or medicine straight out of right. uh, mm-hmm. Westeros. Sure. Um, it sounds like actually like a cyberpunk thing to me. It's a it's oh, an addictive sure. drug yeah. in cyberpunk. That would totally make sense. Um, as does soul travel, right? I mean, Dream Bliss is it's it's just opiates, right? Right. Exactly. Well, that's what that's what I mean, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and then like Mind Shadow is a great name. I'm very mm-hmm. into that. Soul travel. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like. Um, that's definitely interesting, and uh, it makes me like think of how uh, laudanum gets used in um, was it from hell? I think. Anyway, um, like there's uh, an investigator who uses laudanum to mm-hmm. help him solve cases. You know. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, these are these are all pretty cool. Uh, they're bad for you. Right. It's not like even in the DM facing book, they can really make drugs all that fun. Right. Right. Yeah. But, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But also like it, it, game balance says drugs can't be good for you. Mm-hmm. They can be interesting for you right. or bad for you mm-hmm. or both, but mm-hmm. that's it. But uh, yeah. And just to be clear, you know, when I said about dream bliss being, you know, it's something addictive from cyberpunk or something, uh, the entire page and a half before that talks about how these poisons are used for nefarious means. They're not good. They are not good things that you should be playing with. Um, uh, And, um, you know, I mean, a lot of this is very wall of texty and full of rules again. Right. Sure. Um, Because there's saving throws, you know, and then there's, it works differently on certain creatures. Sometimes it has spell effects. So now it's referencing different spells. Sometimes it's, you know, how you can cure someone of this poisoning by doing different things. And that's all about spells and rules. And so a lot of this is, is, is very focused on mechanics, but most of them also come with a nice little, you know, description that, that makes it at least interesting if, if not, uh, easy to read yeah. I mean, it's overall pretty cool to me yeah yeah um, no i like it i like it oh and guests have is like <laughs> i see why you might want to use that that's pretty uh-huh. cool yeah yeah um anyway we next get into magic items and it's hard for us to make a big book of magic items all that interesting to listen to us talk about right historically uh these are these are stylish um the the Hades hand is <laughs> is fun all by itself. Uh, it's you know, interesting bunch of ideas there uh, because it's a mm-hmm. dagger used to store spells in. Um, also known as the dagger of slaying. Oh well, that certainly tells Thanks. you something. Yeah, <laughs> I like and, the bone ring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I appreciate uh, the author's desire to go for like more poetic names mm-hmm, than mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. uh you know weapon of Jaron uh model that Gary yeah. favored. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
yeah. and that D&D has largely stuck with as a result. Right. Yeah. Um, and and also, just, just to be clear, at the beginning of this section, it also calls out where you could find other items that would probably be used by necromancers and death priests that follow various deities or schools of, of, of thought um, or philosophies of necromancy, I guess you could say. And, and it tells you where to find those, whether it's in the PHB or the tone magic or the, I mean, the DMG or the tone magic or whatnot. Um, so it does, it's trying to do a good job of giving you the DM, the ability to provide magic items to your villain or your villainous group that makes sense so that you don't have to do that work yourself. Yep. Um, and then it also provides, you know, some examples of, of these different things. Um, anyway, there's, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, I feel like the majority of this would be pretty self-explanatory in terms of how to convert it to fifth head. Mm-hmm. If that's your mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything called the nether scarab, I'm, going to be pretty into it. Uh, <laughs> I like the hand glyphs of power. Myself. Those are cool those, those too. Are nice. yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a pretty awesome idea. Mm-hmm. And um, again, they are, they, they work in, you know, these, these forbidden tomes and the people who wrote them, they work that into this section as well. So again, we have this cohesive, you know, idea of, Hey, there's a reason these magic items are favored or used by necromancers. And that's because they created them. Um, and the shadow blade um, kind of looks forward really specifically, really super specifically to the hex blade mm-hmm. in Xenothars. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Create shadows just the way hex blades do when they kill stuff. <laughs> yep. Yep. So that's kind of cool. It's, it, like it's very much about the accursed specter kind of concept. And mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty classy. And like, I'm a little bit sad that um, making Black Razor uh, like multiversal lore in D and D wasn't in their minds here because mm-hmm. I really like how that's become a, a bit more multiversal in Five E. But yeah. like this is someone tried to make a weaker copy of Black Razor, and this is what happened. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's you know they heard of that particular artifact and decided they wanted to try to emulate it. But of course they're not powerful enough to make the artifacts. So they made a shadow blade instead. Yep. That's cool. I, I like yeah. it. Um, so the next section here is necromantic lore, which is just really the deep dive into the books that we've been mm-hmm. sort of referencing. Um, and one of my favorite the, sections in the book, if you can't oh, already tell. Oh, it's 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 phenomenal. It's <laughs> yeah. absolutely great. And it's talking about how, hey, you know, cosmic horror has a, a long love affair with exactly this kind of approach and presentation. Mm-hmm. So well, so let me read the names of the of the lore books for the audience. Okay. The Art of Necromancy, the Book of Shadows. I've mentioned both those already. On Coming Forth by Day, the Necrophyticon, the Nicoptic Manuscripts, the Fabric of the Human Body, and the Eleven Baneful Gates. I mean, if that doesn't sound like a bookshelf 
from the freaking shadow plane. I don't know what does. Right. <laughs> it's just perfect. I I love yeah. these two or three pages. They're just they're they're one of the best sections in the book for me. The kind of how yeah. you you really love the spell sections because you can dig into those and turn oh, those man, around no, in your mind. This is better. Think uh, about like, those. No, no doubt. Yeah, and I'm like I love this kind of stuff more than I even love like spell sections as much. Oh, I love those oh. too, but like this is just like this is me like geeking yeah. out on the. Yeah, I mean, this, this is where it's is at for awesome. sure. This is this is the perfect. Um. Yep i I would absolutely love to see um this kind of lore get like built up and explored for wizards more generally Mm -hmm. i think that you could do some cool stuff really supporting wizard play there um we've talked a lot about uh spell research as a mini game in Mm -hmm. 2e um, and the the section on necromantic apprentices apprentices talks about how they can really bulk up your spell research uh, capabilities Mm -hmm. and and that's that's all cool and to the good but Boy, this is where it's at, folks. Mm, yeah. Like, not that these sections. Oh, actually, this, it does talk about how uh, the Book of Shadows includes all of the baneful spells listed mm. on Table Seven and uh, on page uh, forty-six. Well, right. All right. I guess that's a spell list for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and let's step back for a second too. Part of the reason I like this section is they give you a reasoning for why naming these things this way and providing a, a description of them is so important, right? It, um, it talks about early on, it talks about how, um, you know, books of necromantic secrets are, are really an important part of the, of the Cthulhu mythos, right? And that a lot of the readers when a lot, sorry, a lot of the writers, when they would write about the different, mythos aspects they would create these these texts in the in that mythos and part of the reason why the the tales that they told were so impactful is because they heightened the realism by giving a historical context for these texts i mean it was fake because it's fiction but they're giving it as you know as here's here's the historical context of the Book of the Dead, and here's how we're using it in the mythos now, and that all gets wrapped in together. And basically, what they're saying here is they use those same techniques to allow the DM to have use of these texts and have a context with them, so that if you want to put it in your game, you can have the party stumble across some piece of knowledge that then leads them to discovering more about this book, because that's, what's going to build that tension. And I really appreciate that they provide that kind of context to this section, because that's not always done well in a book of magic items or a section filled with magic items. Um, For sure. So I really appreciate that. This is a very well done section. Well, just like we always say that we want magic items to be a story and tell a story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the delivery. This is what right. it looks like at some of its strongest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fairly class specific, and that's maybe a little rough, right? Mm-hmm. There's some for wizards yeah. and some for clerics, but uh, I don't know if you know this, but that's only two of the classes. 
<laughs> I uh, wasn't sure. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but like, it's a shame that they don't have a way to sell anything this grabby to, mm-hmm. you know, your fighters, your rogues, right. your bards, frankly, like, I, I will say that maybe necro bards are a bit of a, a bit of leave out here. That's a, it's a little bit of a shame for this book. <laughs> uh, necro bard would be a cool idea. Yeah. I, I mean, but you know, the best they do with fighters, for example, are things like, uh, you know, the book of physical conditioning where you use it and you get a plus one to your strength or something. You, you know what I mean? Like very generic style things like that. Um but certainly one could write up something like this about different styles of combat or different mm-hmm. strategic, you know, tactical methodologies, or, you know, you definitely could do that. It's just that it's not something that's commonly done. Yep. Um, I think that covers what I want to say about this section. Yeah, me too. Uh, me too. I mean, I, if you get this, if you have this book sitting around and you haven't looked at anything about it, I highly recommend you just turn to page 104 and read 104 and 105, and 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 it's 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 that good. If you're not going to yep. read anything else in this book, read those two pages. It's that right. Good. And you don't need to be playing second edition for any of it no. to be grabby. No, you, uh, no. you may want to tweak the effects, but. Sure. They're pretty close to working mm-hmm. no matter what. Right. Yep. Um, so next up is chapter nine, the campaign. Uh, and so this chapter is here to like, discuss an island, uh, the homeland of the Necromancer Kings, the island of Sahu, mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of locations on it that uh, are going to be very cool and useful for an all a very necromancer focused campaign mm-hmm. um i mean i'll be real with you it feels like a um, domain of red to me it's not but it's so close to being one that it's more sort of an accident of creation than any real difference mm-hmm. yeah in fact if it was framed more as that it might actually feel a little bit better to me mm, okay um, but I mean, it's, it's fine the way it is, uh, um, but yeah, like, th- there's a very, um, a very like Babylonian feel going on here that they're, they're touching on a lot of, um, uh, like Babylonian names and mm-hmm. concepts as sort of the ancient past where the necromancers come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so it, it it gives a, a bit of background, and it it talks about the sort of main two settlements on the island that are that are going to be dealt with, uh, and it talks about a couple of different, um, two or three different, uh, you know, parts of the island. You know, there's a tower of Pizintios, a Colossus of Uruk. Um, I mean, it's it, it's fine. I would probably not run this as a campaign. Sure. Uh, but you know, I, like that's that's that sounds like a harsh criticism, as if oh, it sucks, so I would never run it. That's not really how I mean it. It's just that it's not sort of 
Um, it's sort of presented as an encap, and this is why this is why I say I might like it better if it was presented as a domain of dread, right? Because it's kind of presented as this encapsulated thing, mm-hmm. uh, and forgetting about the entire world that must be around it if it's got merchant ships coming to and from, right? Like as it shows on the picture on the on the yeah. the map of the right. So you know. And, and, yeah, there, there's a couple of notes in it that I feel like hit me wrong, uh, and I probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't run it because of that. But but it has some really good ideas in it, though, too. I, I really appreciate the the text trying to sell you a copy of uh, Creative Campaigning as part of this <laughs> um, and Complete Book of Villains. That's that's very yeah. That's that's very smart of them. As you know, if you've been listening all through the twelve days, don't don't do that. That's yeah. Complete Villains. Yes, Creative Campaigning. Yeah. Nah, mm. take a pass. Um, um, so uh, I have a little bit different of a of a view on this, mm-hmm. and it just comes from the kind of gaming content I've been um, sort of absorbing for the past year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very Dark Souls friendly. Okay. If if you're into uh, Dark Souls or Salt and Sanctuary, you're going to find really a lot to love here it's going to feel like um the like you could run this as a uh tomb of annihilation style hex crawl um because so much of this does remind me also of nangalore and mm-hmm. so on and, and okay. omu mm-hmm. um and it reminds me of that because it's what i'm playing right now let's be right. clear yeah yeah right but at the same time um some of the uh, the presentation of of the undead of the ancient past, um, and these these different locations with very strong, awesome names: the Iron Spires of Ereshkigal, uh, the Colossus of Uruk, um, the Garden of Eternity. Like those all work as Salt and Sanctuary zones, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The like, I don't know if you're into uh, souls like Metroidvanias. If that pitch sounds good to you as a video game, go play Salt and Sanctuary. Then come read this book and tell me if I'm right, because uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot here. Like the Capital of the Necromancer Kings, the Tower of Pizentios. Um, there, there's some good stuff here for for that. It's it's so wall of texty mm-hmm. that I'm having a hard time digging into it to see how I really feel about it. But the names are grabby enough that I don't care. If the text yeah. ends up bad, then I'll just toss it and stick with a cool name. Right. So, and just to be clear, it's nine pages of the book, but it's very wall of text. Nine pages. It's it not. Really it's not nine pages split up with a lot of section headings and bullet points and pictures. In fact, there's very few section headings. There's no bullet points. There's no pictures. Okay. Yep. It's and it's more a campaign framework plus some couple of locations, two, three locations, plus some adventure hooks that tie everything together. It's not poorly done. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I have a criticism about it more. So it's the criticism I have is more so that it doesn't hit my desires. Sure. Right. Not that it's poorly written or badly laid out or, or, or poorly formatted or, or even uninteresting. A lot of it has some really interesting points to it. Um, and they try to do a really good job of, of, um, you know, of, picking up and showing, you know, how you have to have vivid 
NPCs. You have to have important things happening. You need to keep a to keep a convoluted. This is what they say: to keep a convoluted plot moving forward, you have to have believable characters that are essential to the telling of the story, right? And they're trying to emulate that. They mostly hit a little bit of it's a miss, but for the for having nine pages. I think they did a decent job. I don't think sure. it's a bad thing. And I do, again, part of the reason that part of the good stuff about it is they try to work in those tomes of forbidden knowledge and the, and the different sort of um, the, the, the really truly necromantic things they talked about in the very early portions of the book. They're trying to incorporate all of that, but they do it in only nine pages, and that's really hard. So I, I'll give them props for for having a really nice effort there. Yep. Yep. And uh, obviously, I'm not coming after you for not loving this thing. That's oh, sure. Totally yeah, yeah. Fine. No, yeah. Um, I'm just saying that I, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to present it as oh this is objectively bad because that's not yeah. Yeah. Not what I really mean about it. It's just not not good enough for me to use is what I'm really saying. Not to say I wouldn't pull parts from it. I certainly would. Right. right. Which is which is basically how I feel about every <laughs> adventure kind of for right? sure. So so it's it's not really a I'm I'm not really critiquing it and 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 lambasting it, right? It's good for what it is. It's just not exactly what I want. So yeah. Um I mean I, I just really want to uh sort of pick it all apart and lay it all out on a table, maybe as index cards that I've had to write myself so that I can get my head around everything that's here and then start interweaving it with Return to the Tomb of Horrors and Mm -hmm. the City Mm -hmm. of Moyle and all of that big box set that is also uh, just right over there. It's it's within arm's reach as I record this because yeah. I got out to look at it um, like six months ago or whatever. So Maybe here's longer than that. Here's what I would say about that. I feel like that the characters that are described in this particular little campaign framework, you could probably make like a relationship map between yeah. them, and then bring in the the tomb of horror stuff that you're talking about the return to horror stuff that you're talking about bring the some of the npcs from there and relationship map those to make an interwoven area and it would fit perfectly well yep i absolutely agree with that i mean you're well on your way toward a uh 13th age style icons system there sure absolutely yeah and for sure go forth that's a great idea yeah um and honestly the rest of this book uh, with the NPCs that are going to get described mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Uh, full page detail uh, with stat blocks and little tiny font. Right. Uh, also but also very much feel like icons ready to use. Yeah. But uh, so that, so th- what, what Brandis is referring to is after the campaign framework and the, and the little notes that they give, they provide a one page entry for each of the main characters in, in this campaign that they've laid out and because it's on one page like it's almost like a monstrous manual entry it has a little picture and Very it much, has yeah. everything right so that it fits right in with that sort of style and format but it has to have such tiny font because of that because it gives you all the stats in the traditional format for 2e it gives you 
weapon proficiencies, non-weapon proficiencies. It gives you spells, an entire list, tells you where those spells are from. It gives you a tire list of equipment. It gives you a physical appearance. It gives you background. And then it gives you role-playing notes so that you could actually enjoin this particular, because remember, it's talking about having vivid characterizations. And so in order to help facilitate that, they give you an entire page on each one of these individual necromancers that are part of this story. And it is in tiny, tiny font. That is true. But some of it is really good. I like these pages maybe even more than the, <laughs> you know, um, than how they, than, you know, because some of this stuff is just really interesting. I could pull some of these NPCs right out and use them for other games. I mean, they're, That's they're super that fair. Good. Yeah. That's super fair. Um, they've they've name-checked Kazarabet um, enough that now I really mm-hmm. want to. Right. Like, yeah, they, yeah. They did that, did, did just enough to, Say and Kazarabet did this cool thing in, mm, right. in writing this book, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. you're you'll be describing this book to your PCs, and there are these marginalia by Kazarabet, and mm. there's that moment of by who write that name down. We'll do that later. Yeah, right. And exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Once they do that, you've got them. You know? Yeah, and and Pazintios they name check as well in this book, all over yeah, this absolutely. book. Absolutely. And Talib is name checked a few times. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and Vermissa we already mm-hmm. mentioned right. on air. Yep. Um, right. And so that's all just fantastic. Um, yeah, so, yeah, really good stuff. Th- this is very good, but it is written so small that I <laughs> have to work even harder to sort of pick it all mm-hmm. apart and get my head around it. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, that's fair. And then the the very small text, very small font is it then is also used in the next sections, which are the appendices. Right. Um, at, least so, you at least have a few more line breaks. Yeah. Letters. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I think in the last episode that this book has something that none of the other DMGR books have, and that is it has appendices. So it has an appendix number one, which is the common spells for necromancers. Appendix two is wizard spells in the school of necromancy. So in other words, it's still the spells. It's just formatted differently. Sure. And then appendix three is priest spells in the necromantic sphere. And then appendix four, the master index of necromantics priest and wizard spells. So it's basically just providing it for you in slightly different formats so that you can use them. However, which way is best for you. And all these different ways of helping you find uh, those spells in all those mm-hmm. other books, that's actually very kind of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's yeah. it's using up four pages of mm-hmm. the book, but it's very kind of them. Yeah, in terms of making all everything else in this book more useful. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, like no one presentation of spells is useful for all applications. Right. And so, mm-hmm. absolutely coming at it from three different directions in the same few pages is mm-hmm. really nice. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I agree. And because it g- literally gives you the source each time it lists that spell and wh- whatever, yep. for, it's such a great, you know, and in fact, not only does it give you the source, but the last appendix, the index actually gives you a true index. It's giving you the page where it talks about it. And then it gives you the source. <laughs> yep. So it's very, it's, it's, it's well done. Um, 
I, I like that it did that. In fact, I wish that the other ones, some of the other DMGRs had appendices and, you know, so, yeah. I'm going to say that some of these spells did not pass the playground test. Um, <laughs> because, because folks, throbbing bones and undead mount do not. <laughs> nope. Yeah. I mean, yes, that is true. Uh, that's all followed by a, a life surge, you might say. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it might be time to start wrapping up this. <laughs> Sorry, am I going to get us the explicit tag with that right there? No. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so so here's here's the the thing. So before we do final thoughts, I just want to um, let the audience know something. And that is, we are well aware that we've only looked at DMGR1, DMGR5, DMGR6, DMGR7. We know that we've only looked at those four texts in these 12 days. And what that means for you, dear audience, is that we have decided that we are going to now spend the first several episodes of our 2022 uh, Edition Wars schedule to visit the other DMGRs in the series. I will not absolutely promise that we won't throw in a few other things for palate cleanse along the way. Absolutely. But I I just want to be clear that just because we skipped the castle guide and the arms and equipment guide doesn't mean we don't care about those, think they're bad or don't want to visit them. It's just that we wanted the more meaty texts that are sort of, well, there are, there are reasons why, right? Um, but yeah. not that those others aren't me, but there's reasons. And because of those reasons, we chose specific ones to discuss in this 12 Days of Christmas, 12 Days of Edition Wars. Um, but we will revisit those throughout the year this year. And so hopefully by the end of 2022, we'll have hit all the rest of those, along with some other uh, good content for you this year. We're not going to stick solely to that Um Stoly to only those. So, but I just wanted to let the audience know because I know some people on on Twitter had said, "Oh, are you going to get to the Castle Guide?" or "Oh, are you going to get to the Sages and Specialists?" And yes, we will. It's just not part of this twelve days because there's only twelve days. And folks, you know, Brandis and I can just talk, and talk, and talk, and talk, and talk some more. Yeah, that's accurate. So, uh, final uh, thoughts. <laughs> well, so. My final thoughts on the complete book of Necromancers. This book is a banger. It is mm-hmm. really delivering on what it promises. It's not flawless. You know, flawless books don't exist. Thanks right. for asking. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really cool. It is better than I remembered. Um, it has got good content just all over the place going on. Um, mm-hmm. And you can really do yourself a favor and uh, pick up a, a PDF or if you uh, are, are really committed to hard copy somehow. Um, it's it's yeah, very if you, good. If you have some extra cash laying around. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is one of those expensive ones. As sort of a final thoughts on this whole 12 days, um, I really appreciate the feedback we've already gotten for the first several days of the 12 days because we're recording this on the the 29th. Um, The, the comments are, are really wonderful to see. 
and we really appreciate you know, the the editioners listeners who have such kind things to say about you know our, our comments and our conversations um this show is so much fun to do with sam and with our uh, other guests that we've had on so far yeah and i want you to know that brandis and i talk about you behind your back after you've commented on our <laughs> on our stuff but it's always good stuff <laughs> Because we talk about, ooh, maybe we should mention, ooh, no, that's a good point, ooh, uh, yeah, yeah. and it gets us talking, and that that is really great for us. And and even though I don't often reply on Twitter or even on the Discord, um, I do really appreciate it. So Brandis is speaking for me as well. I I also appreciate uh, all the feedback. It's it's been really fun reading it. But this will end our third year of Twelve Days of Edition Wars. Yep, and. Uh, this year, we also covered the DMG of fifth edition mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. why even our sorcerers. Um, and, and that was kind of our year, but it was a big year. Yeah, it was a big year. Well, because we had guests. Right. And, and the guests were incredible. Guests Just were awesome. Wonderful. Um, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of this is just, hey, where is this show going? <laughs> We don't know. We're <laughs> we're excited to find out with you, right? Um, don't make it sound like we don't know what we're doing. I think everyone knows That's I don't so know what funny. I'm doing. <laughs> By the way, I just looked up the complete book of necromancers on eBay, and every single listing is over a hundred dollars. I'm just don't saying. tell me that, dude. I don't oh, need to know how much money I've got on my shelf. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't need to know how much money I've got on my shelf. It's yeah. not. That's not good for me. Yeah, this is one of the only ones I don't have in hard copy. Uh, for just some, somehow, I never, I just never ended up picking it up. And and I, you know, I never lamented the fact that I didn't have this one on my shelf. Um, uh-huh. But I'll tell you, I'm, I, I think I might end up seeking one out. Um, so that that'll be, you know, it's a good thing. It's it is it yep. is a it's a nice book I could see having on my shelf as a reference, even though I'm not even playing second edition. So. Yep, yep. My final thoughts are very similar to yours that uh, we appreciate everybody's feedback and um, and we hope you're enjoying the hell out of this. I, I hope you enjoy this at least as much as I enjoy it when we sit here and talk at each other and, and record these. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have feedback, just throw it at us. We, we read all yep. of it. Yep. So, so with that, I think my final thoughts for, for this the Feast of the Epiphany is to say um, COVID is still ravaging our country. Please take care of yourselves. We want you here for the fourth year of edition wars and the fifth of, of our next 12 days and the next after that. And so please take care of yourselves and each other. Uh, protect your communities by uh, getting vaccinated, by getting your booster shot, by masking up and socially distancing and do what you can folks it's, you know we're we're here having these conversations because of friendship and love and that's how you can show friendship and love for those around you i second all of that every single bit of it good night and good luck peace out happy holidays merry christmas <laughs>